The title of the lecture uh, on the death of Adam and Eve points us to the book of Genesis, where God ordered Adam and Eve to eat freely from any of the trees of the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. When you eat from it, you shall die. With this fateful fall, God pronounced their mortality, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Grounding our understanding of human death in these texts is not an uncomplicated task if we attend to biblical scholarship, both ancient and modern, and contemporary science. The creation stories in Genesis and Paul's commentary on the, sa on the same are, after all, not primarily scientific accounts or historical accounts of human origins. Instead, they relate to Israel's history and function uh, as a response to the origin stories of other ancient Near Eastern cultures, uh, or at least that's the way they're, they're often framed. Furthermore, in a Christian vision, they point to Christ as exhibited in Paul's typological, typological reading of the new Adam. Accordingly, contemporary theologians have questions, questioned efforts to fill in the gaps of the Genesis narrative by turning Adam into the first rational hominid among a group of non-rational but cognitively advanced hominids, or by making Adam a representative man or of a group of early humans. Such lines of inquiry presuppose, many argue, a historical scientific account, and hence refuse to interpret these stories on their own terms. Even if we grant this fill-in-the-gaps warning, further systematic questions still arise. What revelatory truths about sin and death are disclosed in these texts? If God is not the cause of sin and death, ought we not hold that human beings possess freedom, which they use to rebel against God, altering the human condition, marked by alienation and death, holding for some kind of historical fall? Furthermore, in the wake of modern evolutionary biology, how can biological death be regarded as the consequence of sin if death is the means for creating new forms of life. Note the tension captured in Catholic teaching, this quote in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In a sense, bodily death is natural, but for faith, it is in fact the wages of sin. Of course, I cannot answer all these questions fully, but they were swimming around and through me as I wrote this lecture and shaped in subtle ways, I'm sure, some of the moves I make. The modest aim of this lecture is to puzzle through this tension of the naturalness and unnaturalness of death, guided by the wisdom of St. Thomas. A position inspired by Aquinas, on the one hand, takes seriously the material causes of death. He integrates, for example, the dialectic of generation and corruption in his account of providence, and is widely attentive to the animal dimensions of being human. On the other hand, he accounts for what distinguishes human beings from other forms of animal life, namely the rational soul. Furthermore, his teaching uh, on the gifts and grace of God were intended to say something true about the human situation. Let us keep the following three insights from Aquinas in mind as we puzzle through uh, this tension. First, Death and dissolution are natural to human beings by reason of a necessity of matter, but immortality would suit them by reason of the form's nature. Second, 
Accordingly, death is both natural on account of a condition attaching to matter and penal on account of the loss of the divine favor, preserving man from death. And three, by dying, he might deliver us from fearing death. Hence, it is written that he communicated to flesh and blood that through death, he might destroy him who had the empire of death and might deliver them who, through the fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to servitude. In sum, for Aquinas, death is in one respect in accord with nature and in other respects contrary to nature. It is also the dominion uh, of the enemy of human nature to be conquered by the death of Christ, right? So for Aquinas, at least as I read him, it's a complex uh, reality. Death and the forces of death, a, a preliminary note. When we talk about death, we're talking about a phenomenon with overlapping analogical meanings. The mystery of death takes on a variety of meanings in contemporary culture. Just to take uh, two, there's a kind of cooler scientific view uh, and a hotter, more existential view of the forces of death that, pen that permeate uh, our individual and social and communal life. First, within a kind of scientific frame, death is a rather obvious natural event. Death is implicated in the process of generation. Reproduction looks toward the dying of the individual. The diversity of species stimulate violent death and the self-preservation of the species requires the disappearance of individuals in what we might call natural death. We are part of a process that has been evolving over the past 13.7 billion years. Systems and organisms had been gradually evolving from simpler to more complex forms. This dynamic process occurs by natural selection as entities and organisms undergo modifications and ongoing interaction with their environments. Evolution depends on the decay, there's the word Stan was using, uh, and dissolution of systems and organisms, thus heightening our sense of our own fragility and transience within the world process or the world order. Second, we may also speak of the forces of death that penetrate our existential reality. In the concrete life world, death is not a neutral event. And in a Christian context, death in some sense is under the dominion of the enemy of human nature. It bears a relationship with evil, which seeks to kill life and liveliness. The forces of death can obliterate a life physically, mentally, spiritually. Such forces operate through dis uh, distorted human desire and its expressions in pride, envy, rivalry, violence. The Catholic intellectual, René Girard, has identified Satan, the accuser, with the forces of death that are stirred up through distorted desire, envious rivalries, and the transfer of such crises on victims through scapegoating mechanisms. It is easy to think about evil and Satan with a fantasy-like imagination, but for Girard, it is a more common, more real, and an ongoing part of the drama of our daily existence. The contagious forces of death trigger the need for release from disorder. And this need in turn triggers the identification of a victim, someone who is weak or in some way marginal enough that the community can eliminate him or her without fear of reprisal. Satan for Girard is the principle, the prince of both disorder 
right? Chaos and the pseudo order achieved through scapegoating mechanisms, all right? You scapegoat, you sacrifice, and you go home at peace thinking you were, you were right to do so and you sleep well. Uh, but it's a, it's a kind of pseudo order uh, for Girard. The accuser is also the voice within, continually undermining our sense of self, running us down with a multitude of accusations, loading us with guilt for things we've never done. The accuser lies to us. We are not lovable. We are outside of God's mercy. Our life is meaningless and not worth living. These are the forces of death that attempt to blot out life and liveliness. I return to these two dimensions of death later, uh, but first we'll explore some of the key pieces of uh, the puzzle uh, of death uh, that I wish to address today. First, the death of the whole person. Second, original justice in the fall. And third, the new Adam and the new Eve. When we consider death, we are talking not just about biological dissolution, but an event concerning the whole person. Death is in one respect in accord with nature and another respect contrary to nature, right? You kind of see the theme uh, that I keep, that I begin to develop here. Aquinas does not restrict his account of human life to natural life in the conventional sense of the term. Doing so would give us an account of death without hope. Instead, we are both in continuity and discontinuity with the rest of living creatures. Human beings are made of matter and spirit. In his account of human death, Aquinas spends time on both dimensions of the person. He avoids the temptation to consider death uh, as either a flight, uh, as either a flight from the body to a spiritually liberative state, or as merely a kind of biologically obvious return home to, to the elements, uh, to the material cosmic nature. On the side of matter, Aquinas recognizes that death is an obvious feature of the biological world. He notes humanity's close link with other animals. In his account of providence, for example, he recognizes that the corruption of one is the generation of the other. And through this is that the species is kept in existence. Since God provides universally for all being, providence permits certain defects, decay, so that the perfect good of the universe may not be hindered. For if all defects were prevented, much good would be absent from the universe. Aquinas writes, a lion would cease to live if there were no slayings of animals, right? And this came up with predation, things like that uh, in the previous talk. Human beings are part of the process of generation and corruption. The person exists and functions physically, chemically, organically, sensitively. The question is, uh, does the breakdown of these dimensions lead to the end of one's existence as a unity and identity? If the central or substantial form of the human being is material, then the human, human being is intrinsically conditioned by matter and bound to lose identical existence with its decay. If the central form of the human being is spiritual, then the human, be human being is not intrinsically conditioned by matter. Thus, if separated from matter, the central form as spiritual would ground an existing unity and identity. Accordingly, an exclusively material understanding of the human being, of course, is limited from Aquinas' perspective because it leaves out the animating principle of the human being, namely the rational soul, the very spiritual principle mentioned above. 
Aquinas believes in the incorruptibility of the soul, of the human soul. Matter, as we have already seen, is subject to generation and corruption. And material forms that are not self-subsistence, for example, brute animals, are susceptible to corruption. Hence, the souls of brute animals are corrupted when their bodies are corrupted. But human beings are different. The subsistence of the human soul is revealed through our intellectual activities. This incorporeal intellectual principle has an operation per se apart from the body. In his discussion of matter, Aquinas highlighted the likeness of human beings to other animals. He proceeds to highlight a formal distinction which sharply differentiates human beings from brute animals. Therefore, Aquinas writes, the saying that man and animals have a like beginning and generation is true of the body, for all animals alike are made of the earth. But it is not true of the soul, for the souls of brutes are produced by some power of the body, whereas the human soul is produced by God. And I'm mindful of Marusha's uh, comments yesterday about uh, some of the language in uh, the, the ecclesial documents. So I have that in mind, but, uh, and, and I take them very seriously. Um, much more, yeah, kind of comfortable in the frame of a kind of phenomenological sort of embodied self-consciousness uh, and the like, All right? But now we'll stick with the language. Aquinas' understanding of the soul as the form of the body paves the way, and if we draw on Ratzinger, for example, for a dialogical understanding of immortality. For Thomas, the soul is the reality that animates the, the unity of the human being. The human person's central or substantial form uh, that, that Professor Carroll spoke to yesterday is a spiritual intelligibility. It is marked by a spiritual operations that are not intrinsically conditioned by matter, space, time. Such spiritual operations, the capacity to know and love, make possible an interpersonal, spiritual, dialogical relationship. They dispose us to friendship. Spiritual reality can be the ground and center of the person's physical, chemical, organic, and sensitive reality. What can embrace the universe of being through knowledge and love can also provide the ground and unity to the material reality of a single human being. But how might we think about the relationship between body and soul after death to avoid the two errors uh, that I just mentioned, right? The flight from the body to the spiritual or thinking about the dissolution of the human being uh, just returning to, uh, to the elements. For Aquinas, in line with the thinking just outlined, the human soul retains its individuality when separated from the body at death. But the soul's existence is the existence of a soul that was integrated with a particular body. In other words, the human soul as subsistence does not perish with the body, nor does it lose the individuality acquired in animating this particular body. But the individuation of the soul by the body is also prospective. That is, it retains the capacity to be reunited with the body. The separation of the soul, in other words, is not a dualistic moment of liberation. Rather, the human soul, St. Thomas says, remains in its existence when it has been separated from the body, having a natural aptitude and inclination for union with the body. The soul is meant by nature to be joined to the body. The soul by itself, while the animating principle of the body, I think cannot be called the human person. As Aquinas writes in De Potentia, the soul is more like God when united to the body than when separated from it, because its nature is then more perfect. 
Bodily death and the survival of our genes into the next generation then, while it says a lot, uh, as attested to by Kieran's uh, discussion yesterday uh, of anthropology, right? while it says a lot, it does not fully capture what is most natural about human beings. If the unity of the person is animated by a spiritual central form, then what is natural to us is an orientation to meaning, truth, goodness, love. This is the realm of the natural desire for God that can only be fulfilled in a disproportionate way by the beatific vision. The intellectual quest is not some optional pleasurable diversion for the intellect. Rather, we are created beings made for a relationship with truth. The lives of the saints disclose this supernatural level of relational uh, reality. And, uh, you know, I would add that looking to the saints as theological resources would, would be a way to, I think, resist uh, what we talked about a lot here, the God of the gaps uh, temptation. Let's talk about a kind of distinct intelligibility. Finally, Thomas reflects on the possibility of the incorruptibility of the body as most fitting to the soul. All right, a point that anticipates uh, my discussion below about uh, you know, the gift of immortality uh, in the state of original justice. In Summa, Summa Contra Gentiles 4, 81, Aquinas responds to arguments against the resurrection. According to Aquinas, in fashioning human nature, God bestowed on the body something in addition to that which was due to it by virtue of its natural principles. This was a kind of incorruptibility, the result of the body being so proportioned to its form that as the soul's life is everlasting, so was it possible for the body through the soul to live forever. This incorruptibility, although it was not natural in relation to a natural principle, was nevertheless natural, so to say, in relation to the end. Inasmuch as the matter was proportioned to its natural form, which is the end of matter, uh, which is the end of matter. Accordingly, when the soul against the order of its nature turned away from God, the body was deprived of the God-given disposition, which made it proportionate to the soul, and death was the result. Whether or not uh, this is a historical sequence, the intelligibility to be grasped here is that our lived reality is not yet fully permeated and transformed by grace. Death expresses this deprivation of our authentic human destiny. Death, original justice, and the fall. For Aquinas, death is in one respect in accord with nature, and in other, other respects, contrary to nature. It is contrary to the human nature shared with the first human beings, who were originally endowed with the gift of immortality and the sanctifying grace of friendship with God. For Aquinas, the first human beings before the fall were created with nature and grace in a state of original justice or original innocence. We heard a lot about this uh, in the previous presentation, so I won't repeat too much here. To be fully human, as I mentioned uh, at the end of the previous section, means to be human beings uh, endowed with grace. All right, the fallen condition indicates a state of being in a way less than human. So original sin for Aquinas distorts our nature and removes our grace. And so we can talk about uh, the gifts of integrity. We heard a lot about the gift uh, of knowledge and of course uh, the gift of immortality, which uh, relates especially uh, to this talk. Uh, 
And so the gift of immortality uh, indicates that human beings are composite creatures, right? As I said above, of spirit and matter, integrated, and hence we're mortal. But for St. Thomas, uh, you might say that it was fitting for God to have given Adam and Eve the gift of immortality to perfect this limitation in their nature so that both body and soul are incorruptible. In this way, the original pair would have been immortal, which is fitting for creatures ordained to eternal friendship with the God who is life himself. And of course, in terms of the supernatural gift, all right, human beings were endowed with sanctifying grace, uh, divine friendship. Death as punishment. For Aquinas, death is in one respect in accord with nature and in other respects, contrary to nature. It is contrary to nature because death bears the mark of a punishment. For Aquinas, original sin is the privation of original justice. Our natural longings are wounded. The intellect is darkened. The will has difficulty choosing the good. We are no longer protected from suffering, bodily corruption, right, and preserved in immortality. Ultimately, we lose the sanctifying grace that made our relationship with God possible. What does this mean for us? In Paul's typological exegesis, through one man, sin entered into the world, and by sin, death, right? He's referring to original, according to Aquinas, original sin and not actual sin. For us, original sin is not a voluntary act. It is rather a wounded condition we receive. In Aquinas' account, all human beings are born of Adam. Those human beings may be considered as one person insofar as they have one common nature. A revelatory truth of this Genesis story is that death is not merely natural, but bears the stamp of a punishment. Death is an indispensable dimension of our concrete existence, and yet contains the character of something that ought not to have been. This tension is elucidated by a consideration of just punishment. In Thomas's account, death has been imposed on humanity as a just punishment. It's difficult for modern ears to hear. It's troubling for us to think about the condition of historical humanity in relation to a kind of prehistoric catastrophe. But perhaps it's not as startling as it sounds at first glance. Is there an intelligibility to be grasped? Aquinas distinguishes between culpa and pena, fault and punishment. Culpa is a voluntary and disordered act, and pena is a, is a punishment incurred by culpa. A punishment is incurred by a preceding sin, either of the person or at least of the nature. Consequently, whereas culpa is something a person voluntary, voluntarily commits, pena is something contrary to the will, or you might say a punishment that one suffers. While the relationship between the two is complex, there can be discovered in Aquinas a kind of intrinsic relationship between sin and its resulting punishment. Sin disrupts the order of divine justice. The debt of punishment incurred by sin is not imposed on the human person by the arbitrary will of God. Rather, the punishment is related to the disturbance of the divine order. For Aquinas, God does not delight in punishment for its own sake, but rather in the order of God's own justice. It's a manifestation of sin's own reward, as it were. This is why, as a side note, Thomas, Thomas, Thomas I think, I think 
privileges the metaphor of satisfaction uh, for Christ's salvific death, although he considers all kinds of uh, dimensions of, of the salvific death, but uh, that Christ came to save us principally from original sin by taking away, taking on the debt of punishment. Aquinas offers a further relevant determination in his account of punishment. Punishment as medicinal. Medicinal punishment deprives one of a lesser good in order to increase a greater good. Since the inflicting of punishment often changes the, dispos the disposition of the one being punished, it can, it can uh, even change uh, the person's will, right? It can turn the person, all right? Presupposing some good dispositions, medicinal punishment in a way tends to a conversion of the will. Under this punishment as medicine framework, death in light of salvation history can be experienced as a catalyst for faith and hope, both of which orient us to our eschatological destiny. If Christ had released us from physical death, for Aquinas, we would focus our hope on something less, the attainment of bodily goods and so forth. In sum, death as the initial loss of this gift of immortality does not lie in human beings as culpa, other than for Adam, but as pena, as something we suffer insofar as we share a common human nature. From the prison of modern sensibilities, this connection of sin to death strikes us as an overreaction but upon deeper explanation, it is not entirely unreasonable to link sin with death. Death is, after all, inherent in the nature of sin. It is the fruit of sin, which is psychologically deadening and even can be morally mortal. It is not something simply imposed from the outside. As Joseph Pieper said, one who has not recognized the fundamental fatality of sin has not yet seen the true countenance of death. What meaning might we draw when considering this gift of immortality, especially in an evolutionary universe? I would note a particular emphasis in the reflection of some of the modern popes, namely thinking about death in a more relational mode with less emphasis on a literal exemption from biological death. Uh, Matthew talked about it in his paper yesterday, he talked about this trend. As Pope Benedict XVI noted in Space Salvi, we do not desire death. We do not desire death, nor do our loved ones desire the same for us. But we also do not want to go on living indefinitely. The earth was not created for the elimination of death. Such would place earth and humanity, in Benedict's words, in an impossible situation. This tension gives rise, according to Benedict, to a deeper question about what we mean by the word life. There are moments when it suddenly seems clear to us, he says, yes, this is what true life is. This is what it would be like. This is true life. Besides, what we call life in our everyday language is not real life at all. It seems to me that the fundamental intelligibility of church teaching on the gift of immortality does not mean that the first human beings, had they not sinned, would have lived on endlessly in the bodily life of this world. As finite human beings, they would have had an end to their lives, even if, as finite beings, even if they had remained in their bodily constitution. Perhaps it would have been a perfect consummation of life, a kind of death without dying, akin to the perfection we now look for as the final result of redemption and resurrection. 
an act of consummation of the whole person from within without suffering any violent dissolution of the actual bodily constitution. This is important because it draws our attention to the fact that not every aspect of our death can be considered a consequence of sin that ought not to have been. But of course, there's a whole dimension that ought to not have been. In his Theology of the Body, John Paul II emphasized the relational character of death. In his reflection on original solitude, John Paul interprets Adam in the Yahwist account of Genesis 2 and 3 as possessing an, underst an understanding in his interiority that he is a partner of the absolute. The fundamental meaning of his personhood is that he shares a unique, exclusive, unrepeatable relationship with God himself. This call to communion is a gift, and man has the freedom to remain in this eternal covenant or reject it. Rejection means death. And this is not simply the death of an animal, but the death of a person called to communion. This call to communion is revealed and experienced through the body. This is the deathly loneliness of alienation and not the relational communion of original solitude. John Paul poses a striking question. Did Adam understand the words, you shall die? In his original solitude, his existence was constituted by his dependence on God. Though he shared the body of an animal, his whole person was animated by spirit. And so he knew he was limited. He knew his finitude. From the beginning then, he knew the alternative between death and immortality. So death for John Paul II is alienation from God. In sum, an intelligibility to be grasped is that death in some sense is a manifestation of sin in the bodily spiritual constitution of the person. Death expresses the fact that earthly, the earthly reality of the human person is no longer or not yet completely permeated and transformed by grace. Death is the culmination of distorted desire and such distorted desire manifests an ongoing presence of death in our lives, spreading its veil of darkness throughout the human life world. The new Adam, the new Eve, and the forces of death. Thus far, I've suggested that death is not simply a natural, neutral event, but a condition connected to sin, evil, punishment. For Aquinas, the discussion of the naturalness or unnaturalness of death and the connection between original sin and death only ultimately makes sense within a Christological context. The scriptural foundations rest on Paul's account of the economy of salvation, wherein he emphasizes that Christ's work was to restore what Adam lost for the whole human race, namely a restoration of divine friendship. Christ is the new Adam. Therefore, just as through one person sin entered the world, and through sin death, and thus death came to all, inasmuch as all sinned. In light of Paul's typological reading, it seems fitting in the final section to consider the death of Adam and Eve in light of the new Adam and the new Eve. Looking to Christ for an authentic attitude toward death takes on deeper meaning if we think a bit counterintuitively about Adam and the new Adam. The son existed from all eternity in the life of the Trinity. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That is to say, in a way, there's no before. There's no before Christ. There's no before the son. We often think about Adam and the new Adam in chronological order, but there is a sense in which the son preceded Adam 
and that the incarnate son recapitulates, a kind of Irenaeus idea, recapitulates human beings and human history. Christ is the model for Adam, understood principally here as our solidarity in fallen human nature, and not vice versa. In other words, God reveals to us who we are in Christ, Gaudium et Spes 22, including Christ's response to death and the forces of death. My comments in this final section uh, are meant to be brief and more su suggestive uh, than explanatory. I circle back to the twofold meaning of death that I offered at the beginning of the lecture. First, bodily death, and second, the forces of death that kill life and liveliness under the dominion of the enemy of human nature, and relate this again to the gift of immortality. So bodily death. I've distinguished, I have highlighted Aquinas's cognizance of the natural dimensions of human death, vis-a-vis -vis his larger vision of providence and the generation of corruption that are part of the world order. This sense is heightened today by the embedding of the human condition in the larger evolutionary process. Still, what insight might the resurrection of Christ and the assumption of Mary shed on this matter? Uh, Matthew, yesterday in his paper, uh, I was excited to see he referred to this. At least I wasn't the only one thinking through this particular connection. Recall that for Aquinas, there was some sense that the spiritual dimension of the soul was able to animate and protect the material dimension of the human person from dissolution. There is a trace of God in the body. The death of Christ reveals that death is not the ultimate destiny of human beings. The body can be restored from death to life by divine power. In sum, Matter is not necessarily corruptible by nature if, right, if we take nature to mean that which is proportionate uh, to an end. And as we have already indicated, the end of the human person is a share in the beatific vision. This argument gains further momentum when we think about the risen body of Christ. Perhaps it is more adequate to say that the risen body of Christ and its fruits in the assumed body of Mary and the glorified bodies of the saints our nature brought to perfection by divine, divine power. In other words, there's this, I think this felt sense sometimes to think about the resurrection as against nature or you know, the, the assumption of the glorified body, but uh, to think about it as nature brought to perfection by divine power. The gift of immortality indicates God's making possible the eternity of the body, which was revealed by Christ in a disproportionate way in the resurrection. Okay, new Adam, new Eve, and the forces of death. Jesus as the new Adam was victimized by and overcame the forces of death, pride, envy, scapegoating, that hold the human condition, that all these things that hold the human condition in captivity. In the gospels, and I'm returning here to uh, an insight from Rene Girard, Jesus exposes the scapegoating mechanism. In the story of the woman taken in adultery, Jesus saves the woman from being stoned by preventing the violent contagion from getting started. He initiates instead the contagion of nonviolence. He models mercy and slowly the crowd follows suit. Soon he would be the victim. As we see in the gospels, all turn against him. He is the victim of the scapegoating mechanism that pits all against one, including his own disciples who betray him, desert him and deny him. He is put to death by a gruesome Roman form of torture 
and execution. By his death and resurrection, he subverts the mythic power of the enemy of human nature's victim mechanism. The gospels offer a kind of new knowledge that begin with faith in Christ uh, and the intelligence of the victim. With Christ who exercises God's power over death and the forces of death that seek to kill life and liveliness. In salvation history, Mary, the new Eve was conceived in sanctifying grace. Hence, Mary was free of original sin, the original sin uh, that victimizes the human condition as punishment. Mary's fullness of grace is manifest in specific virtues that respond to the violent mechanisms that resolve, uh, uh, the violent mechanisms that result from envy and com communal crises and other forces of death. The catechism suggests that beneath the disobedient choice of our first parents lurked a seductive voice opposed to God, which made them fall into death out of envy. All right, so there's an emphasis on envy there. The absence of original sin enabled Mary freely to choose not to succumb to, disort, to, to distorted mimetic desire. She is a woman without pride. She is a woman without envy, to use the phrase from John Dodosky's article with the same name, a woman without envy. To state it in a more positive way, as various scriptural stories attest, Mary embodied humility and charity, the two virtues that counteract pride and envy, as St. Thomas teaches us. Mary was preserved from the forces of death that permeate the fallen condition, maintaining an intimate friendship with God through sanctifying grace. Mary as the new Eve sheds some light then, at least analogically, at least I suggest, maybe I'm wrong on this, on what it might mean to be a human being before the fall. She was preserved from being both a victim and a perpetrator of the forces of death that arise from distorted human desire. All right, a long conclusion. Let me offer a clarification by contrast that illuminates the value, I think, of a Thomas-based vision of death. First, consider what I call in broad strokes, uh, kind of a stoic Heideggerian embrace of death, right? I think some of those, some of this stoic or Heideggerian, it's kind of in the cultural air. And uh, I'm not uh, totally anti-stoic or anything like that. I visited Marcus Aurelius' statue uh, already. I greatly appreciate uh, the, the Stoics. But um, the Stoic posture resigns to the fact that the time has come for matter to dissolve once again into the elements, right? So the, the Stoic attitude is a kind of brave and noble, noble attitude. But it's the kind of attitude also where, uh, where suicide is at times a fitting response to nature's friendly signal to retreat. Think of Cato. Or in a more explicitly Heideggerian vein, to face death squarely, Dasein becomes resolute in the face of its own tenuous existence. Resoluteness brings us before the primordial truth of existence, which is that one must always choose in the light of death, a choice that could be finalized at any moment because of one's demise. For Heidegger, death reveals itself as that possibility which is one's own most, which is non-relational and which is not to be outstripped. It is inescapable and unavoidable. Real thinking about death brings about the discovery of oneself as a finite event of being. And with little intention to console, 
Heidegger insisted that the meaning of being is time and that time gives no meaning. In light of the stoic Heideggerian frame, let us consider again a Thomist embrace of death in order to draw out, uh, I do this to draw out the central features of the argument. First, the Thomist posture internalizes death as in some sense natural. In a contemporary scientific context, this wisdom perspective makes, makes space for human animality and our connection to the larger cosmos. It acknowledges the finitude of matter and that death and decay are permitted in God's providential plan. It makes space for a certain evolutionary continuity between human beings and non-human animals. Second, Thomistic wisdom makes space for evolutionary discontinuity. Accounting for the whole person, Thomistic wisdom understands the soul as a substantial, central, organizing form of the physical, chemical, organic, and sensitive dimensions of the human person. In this sense, the intellectual and volitional dimensions of the person disclose a natural desire for meaning, truth, goodness, love, a desire that is fulfilled disproportionately in the beatific vision. These spiritual capacities dispose us to interpersonal communion with God. In this respect, human death does not fully capture the telos of human persons and our supernatural vocations. Third, Thomistic wisdom acknowledges that death has the quality of a punishment. The narrative of original justice and original sin reveal truths about the human situation, that God created human beings in God's image and established a relationship of intimacy. Human flourishing is marked by multiple kinds of integrity, especially an ongoing relationship and dependence on God, who is the opposite of death. Original sin reveals a mysterious event that was not meant to be. But the quality of punishment in human death is, in fact, a testament to hope. It recognizes that death as medicinal, just punishment, death as medicinal, can be considered a good in a certain respect. Stoic and Heideggerian resignation and resoluteness resist the ability to embrace the good intended by punishment. On the contrary, this Thomistic attitude encourages, encourages us, let me suggest, one, to accept that we are in some sense victims of an original catastrophe, that there is something to human death that ought not to have been, that it is fit, fitting to rage against the dying of the light, as spiritually animated and soul bodies, we are fundamentally oriented to truth and goodness. We are first and foremost partners with the absolute in John Paul II's language and gifted with the sanctifying grace of divine friendship. The Thomistic attitude also beckons us too to recognize our culpability for the ways we corroborate and extend our primal sinfulness. This attitude fosters sorrow and detestation for sin along with gratitude for the grace of forgiveness and reconciliation. In sum, recognizing both our victimhood and our culpability in relation to the forces of death is a key ingredient to a life of flourishing, an ingredient underplayed and often missing in a Stoic or a Heideggerian account. Fourth and finally, Thomistic wisdom suggests a discussion of the naturalness or unnaturalness of death only comes to fruition in a Christological context. 
If death came to all through our solidarity in Adam's nature, how much more do we share abundant life in solidarity with Jesus Christ? It was fitting then to consider death, the death of Adam and Eve in light of the new Adam and the new Eve. First, the gift of immortality suggests that the human body has the potential to be elevated into incorruptibility. I suggested above that one way to gain insight into this dimension of the human person is attention to the resurrection of the body, the assumption of Mary, the glorified body of the saints. These ideas are, are both of these doctrines revealed that the glorified body of Christ and the assumed body of Mary are not unnatural, but unveil a supernatural transformation of human bodily life to which we are destined. Second, the new Adam and new Eve's relationship with the forces of death reveal a resistance, reveals a resistance to the enemy of human nature who seeks to kill life and liveliness. This is the way of humility and self-sacrificing love, the very supernatural solution to the forces of pride, envy, and violence associated with the dominion of death. <laughs>